We will turn first to the book of Genesis. There have been more attacks on the book of Genesis than any other book in the Bible. We're watching new attacks, fresh attacks on foundational principles. You could call them creation ordinances that God at creation set in place for all people in all cultures for all time. Gender is a creation ordinance. Marriage is a creation ordinance. Having children is a creation ordinance. Work is a creation ordinance, to mention a few. Psalm 11.3 says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We just continue living under the authority of God's Word and following the Lord Jesus. That's how you get sanity. That's how you get wisdom. Genesis 127 and 128, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's never been under question, but it is now. Before I read 28, jump down to 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's marriage. Always been understood what it is, very clear. God owns marriage. He invented it. He has the patent. He has the copyright. We're seeing some attempts at copyright infringement. But God owns marriage. Man and woman, period. 128, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's having children. That's a creation ordinance. Children are a blessing from the Lord. They're also an inconvenience. <laughs> Just depends on what time of day they catch you. They're a blessing. 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Man has dominion over the earth. He is to steward it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now go to 1 Corinthians, if you would, the last chapter, verse 16. Paul is wrapping up his letter to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth was the most messed up church in the New Testament. They were just all screwed up. And in every chapter, Paul basically is correcting them. They had all the gifts, but they were immature. He's wrapping up 1 Corinthians 16, and in verse 13, he gives them four little summary statements. Here's what he says. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. The great theologian Gloria Steinem once said, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. We're living in crazy times. We're watching the world, we're watching a nation, we're watching a culture go insane. But in the midst of it, Isaiah 41, do not fear, for I am your God, I will help you. I will uphold you with my mighty right hand. We're good. We're raising our kids, we're raising our grandkids, and it's a great challenge because we're facing things we've never faced before. I did a book, it's called Point Man, How a Man Can Lead a Family. It was about spiritual leadership. I was blessed to be born in a family, not a perfect family, but my dad was a spiritual leader. He showed me what that meant to lead your family spiritually. We've all seen manhood that's out of control. We've all seen manhood that's self-centered. When we find what God intended for men, we don't find self, we find selflessness. Not tyranny, but we find a man with a servant's heart and a servant's spirit. The model of manhood is Jesus. We're going to look at Jesus. If you want to know what manhood is about and what it should be, you look at Jesus. This can be learned. When he comes into our lives, when we turn from our sin and turn to him and say, Lord Jesus, come into my life and forgive me of my sin. We're born again. We're born again, but we're immature like an infant, and now we're going to start a process of growth to maturity. I've been working all summer on an update to that book, Point Man. I got so much material, I can't even breathe. Mary asked me last night, I was just dropping off to sleep. She said, what are you going to preach on tomorrow? I said, manhood. She said, what? I said, manhood. What are you going to say? I said, I hope you can join us tomorrow morning. <laughs> Why are we going to talk about manhood? 
because there's so much confusion. So many of us have seen what it isn't. But where did it come from? It came from God. God created man, God created woman. They're both made in the image of God, and they're both equal in God's eyes. Wherever Christianity has gone, the status of women has gone up. You trace that historically. But our culture says men and women are equal, therefore men and women are the same. We are not the same. We're different. God made us different, and God likes the difference. And we complement. There's harmony. I'm going to try and cover three things this morning. First of all, we're going to talk about the denial of manhood. Secondly, we'll look at the delay of manhood, which is rampant in our culture. Thirdly, we will look at the detour of manhood. Fourthly, we will look at the north star of manhood, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're lost somewhere in the middle of the desert, the middle of the mountains or whatever, you have no compass, you got nothing. If you can find the North Star, you can make your way out. Because the North Star is a fixed star. You can navigate off of that star. It's stable, it's dependable, it's reliable. Jesus is the North Star. When you're in the darkness in any area of your life, you look to him. First, let's review 1 Corinthians 16, 13. We read it a minute ago. Paul is summing up his letter to the church at Corinth, first letter. He says four things to them. I'm just going to refer to the other three because we got to get on the third one. He says, be on the alert. Why would you be on the alert? I've talked to a lot of men over the years. I've been basically in men's ministry since 1990. And here's what I often say to guys. When you get serious about Christ, the enemy gets serious about you. When you get all in with Jesus, you just put a target on your back. If you're just a church guy, he's not worried about you. But when you get serious with Jesus and his word, you better be on the alert. First Peter 5, 8, your adversary the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now you have an enemy who's going to try and take you out because he doesn't want you having influence. So be on the alert. Secondly, he says, stand firm in the faith. Now. I would refer you later over to Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, which is all about spiritual warfare. Three times in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, we are told to stand firm. Stand firm. We're also told, if you jump to the fourth one there, be strong. We're told in Ephesians 6, 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. The more you trust in God's sovereignty and his strength and his goodness and his love and his provision and his care and that he will never leave nor forsake you, the more peace you will have in your heart. Because you are strong, not in yourself, you are strong in him. The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom then shall I fear? So the more we know him, the more peace we have in our hearts, regardless of what's going on around us. If the nation, if the culture is falling apart and unraveling, as we're watching it do, we can be at peace. I want to focus on the third statement. He says, act like men. The church of Corinth was really messed up. A lot of idolatry, a lot of immorality, anything goes. It was probably not a place where you'd want to raise your kids. But he could say to them, act like men, and they knew what he meant. We have gotten so far away from the biblical norm of manhood that you literally can say to a young generation, act like men, and they don't know what you're talking about because they haven't seen it. It's tragic. Now, why are we talking about this this morning? The older men are to teach the younger men. We're to teach them a lot of things. One of the things the older men are to teach the younger men is how to act like a man. Godly women can play an incredibly key role in helping their young men become godly men. They have to be taught to act like men. They're going to hear all kinds of things. They're going to hear all kinds of opinions. They're going to be told this. They're going to be told that. But they need to know the truth from someone who loves them and cares. 
men and women together can work to raise up our boys, our young men, so that they can become mature, godly, stable, Titus 2-2 men who are able to fight off impulses, who are serious, who have gravitas, who have weight about them, who are stable, who are steadfast in love, in their relationships, in their faith. You can be a North Star in the life of these young ones coming up and train them and equip them so that they can become North Stars in their homes for Christ. That's what this is all about. It's called discipleship. Let's talk about the denial of manhood, because this is our culture. Harvey Mansfield is a professor at Harvard, written a book called Manliness that didn't go over real well at Harvard. In his chapter called The Gender Neutral Society, he says this, not a Christian, just a man who still has some common sense in the academic world. Today, the very word manliness seems quite obsolete. We are in the process of making the English language gender neutral. And manliness, the quality of one gender, or rather of one sex, seems to describe the essence of the enemy we are attacking, the evil we are eradicating. Recently, I had a call from the alumni magazine at the university where I work asking me to comment on a former professor of mine now being honored. Responding too quickly, I said, what impressed me more than all of his qualities was his manliness. There was silence at the other end of the line. And finally, the female voice said, could you think of another word? We now avoid using man to refer to both sexes, as in the glowing phrase, the rights of man to which America was once dedicated. All the man words have been brought to account and corrected. Mankind has become humankind, man of the year, person of the year, and so on. But even when man means only male, manly still seems pretentious in our new society and threatening to it as well. Why would that be? Jesus created man. All things were created by him and for him and through him. Jesus is the creator. Jesus created man. Jesus created a woman. They asked Jesus. They were trying to trip him up. And he said, have you not read that from the beginning? And he took them back to Genesis. They were trying to trip him another time. And they said, we're disciples of Moses. He said, yeah, Moses wrote of me. Jesus referred to Genesis all the time. He had no problem referring to Genesis. Jesus believed Genesis. By the way, Jesus was at Genesis. So when we look to manhood, we look to Jesus. But there is this denial of manhood. Stephen Nichols has written, at the turn of the 20th century, the sciences supposedly knew better than the Bible. Now the social sciences supposedly know better than the Bible. And we are seeing this new worldview presented artfully and entertainingly through a barrage of media in the halls of the academy. A casual watcher and listener will be exposed to countless gay, bisexual, and transgender individuals, acts, ideas, and all without ever leaving mainstream media outlets. These are the times in which we live. Nichols goes on and says, these challenges have a cumulative effect. They become self-fulfilling prophecies. The promoters and producers of this material not only want to make room for these biblically aberrant views, they want to increase the tribe. They want to silence anyone who would stand up against them. They want to oppose anyone who would say what you are promoting and doing is wrong. The proverbial silver lining in these challenges to the issue before us in our day is that they bring a great deal of clarity to us as Christians. Namely, will our authority be the Word of God, or will it be the sensibilities of our age? Is it the Bible, or is it us? You've got to decide what your authority is. Let's talk about the delay of manhood. By the way, the term in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, act like men, it's the word andrizomai. I'll give you a little technical background here. So they took the Old Testament written in Hebrew, and at a certain point, they wrote it in Greek, because a lot of people read Greek. It's called the Septuagint. This word andrizomai is used a lot in the Septuagint, and the meaning that is there is encouraging soldiers to act with courage and obedience. Courage, fighting off fear. So much of the Christian life is fighting off fear. It's a command to be courageous 
and fight off fear and do the right thing. And Drizomai, act like a man. We've got something really interesting going on in this culture, and you've seen it. We have a group of young men. It's not all young men. I want to make that very clear. We have a lot of young men who are confused about manhood. I've seen young Christian men react, not positively, to the phrase, act like a man. Why would they do that? They've probably been hurt by a man. Maybe they were abandoned by a man. I don't know. But it had to be counterfeit manhood. Manhood has essentially been lost for a large segment of males under the age of 35. Masculinity is fast becoming a disappearing reality in our culture. Fewer and fewer men demonstrate it. Millions of young men have and are growing up without it, and women and girls are suffering greatly as a result. You're a young lady. You have a desire to be a wife and a mother. That's a godly desire. Don't ever squelch that. That's of the Lord. He's well pleased with that. I've had young ladies say, where are the men? My daughter asked me that. Where are the men? I said, you only need one, Rachel. <laughs> you needed 12, you might be in trouble. Just need one. But see, this is an issue for our daughters as well. We have a generation of young men who are profoundly confused, and it's really not their fault. Here's what's happening when I talk about the delay of manhood. Because there's such confusion among so many young men about what it means to be a man, we're watching something happen, and what we're watching happen is we are watching the prolonging of adolescence and the putting off of manhood. Manhood is embracing responsibility and fighting off passivity. Let me say that again. It's embracing responsibility and fighting off passivity. So when you're a man, you're responsible and you fight off passivity. But we have a group of young men, for various reasons, they're attempting to prolong adolescence. They're attempting to prolong the teenage years and put off manhood. Historically, there have been five. Now, why am I talking about this? Because this is what we're up against, and this is what we have to work with and address in order to help young men know how to act like men. Historically, there have been five markers that takes a young man from adolescence, from being a teenager, to being a man. If I had time, I would show you how these all relate back to Genesis, but I don't have time. I will tell you this. My, my maternal grandfather, Grandpa Brown, Harry Brown, when he was about, I think it was 1910, 13 years old, seventh grade, knock on the classroom door, a little one-room schoolhouse, Teacher asked him to step out, talk with the gentleman, a principal, and he said, I'm sorry to inform you, Harry, that your father had a heart attack and passed away a couple of hours ago. Now, he was just a young man, always wanted to be attorney. That was his goal, to go to law school. That was his last day of school, seventh grade, because he had a mother and he had a brother who was handicapped. So after his dad's funeral, he went to work for Standard Oil in Central California in the oil fields. He never went to law school. Worked in the oil fields, took care of everybody. 13 years old, had to act like a man. Never went to the prom, never had spring break, never went to summer camp. We've turned adolescence into an industry. He never had any of that, why? Someone had to act like a man, so he did. Years later, he was able to start a couple of furniture stores, did pretty well. Never became attorney, but he was a man. I'm thankful for him. Five markers, here they go. Let me just give them to you real quick. First marker of going from being a boy to a man, number one, you complete your education. Finish it. Well, yeah, well, yeah you know, I dropped out of high school. All right, go get your GED. I've had guys tell me this. Go get your GED. Well, you know, go get it. You can do it online. Or, yeah, I go to the university. Uh, uh, uh. Really? How long have you been there? 12 years. Yeah, I just got three more classes. Yeah, really? Well, why don't you finish them? What? Why don't you finish them? Just finish them. Finish them by Christmas. Finish it. You want a certain job? You got to go to college? Then you got to get the credential to open the door to get the job. Not all jobs require going to college. It might just need a high school diploma. But get the high school diploma. What? Trade school. Jesus was in the trades. You don't have to go to college. Not everybody should go to college. 90% of college, I think, is propaganda. A little bit of it helps, but not much. But you got to get the paper. 
Work in the trades. You can make great money in the trades. Jesus was in the trades. Jesus was a carpenter. Showed up in the same little town, same little shop, every day. Inter- interacting with people, that's what he did. Same o, same o. Jesus sanctified work when he did that, before he started this public ministry. So you might need to finish trade school to get in the trades. So finish your education. Here's number two, to become a man. Leave home. I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with men in conferences around the country, and here's a composite of about 10 or 12 or 15 conversations. I'll just sum it up. Guy comes up to me, he said, yeah, I heard what you said, Steve, and during a break, he says, yeah, my son's graduated, he's 28. At least he graduated from college, and he's at home. I said, really? Yeah, yeah, he's living at home. Does he work? No, no, doesn't work. Very bright, but he doesn't work. Well, what does he do? Well, he plays video games pretty much all night, sleeps during the day. Really? Yeah, it's not a good situation. You obviously don't feel too good about it. No, no, it's just not right. I said, you know the Lord? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Your wife know the Lord? Yeah. Yet you don't think this is right? Oh, no. No. Well, why don't you do something about it? Well, you, you know my wife. No, actually, I don't. <laughs> I, I didn't say that. I'm thinking it. Very strong woman. Very strong. Wonderful woman. Very strong. Okay? There you go. So here's the deal. He thinks the boy ought to leave. He's not a boy. He's a man. He's 28 years old. She wants him to be there. So let me say a word to the ladies and my car's running and I'm leaving. (laughs) And it goes very fast. You gotta be careful of smothering boys. With your boy, and I'm gonna shoot real straight with you here. You gotta be careful of making your boys fearful. You can't instill fear of getting hurt in a boy. It's gonna be hard for him to be a man. Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus got hurt for the church. Jesus got pummeled for the church. Jesus got killed for the church. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. They're to get hurt for their wives. They're to get pummeled for their families. They're to take the blows. You want him to be careful and cautious, but he's going to have to get hurt. Let him play some contact sports. Well, he might get hurt. No, ma'am, he will get hurt. But he has to learn to live with the hurt. He'll recover. He'll be fine. But what you don't want to do is create a fearful boy who turns into a fearful man and is afraid to lead and be the man he's supposed to be. You can't smother him. And I know you love him to death. I know you do. He said, you think he ought to leave? I said, what do you think? Yeah, I think he ought to leave. When do you think you ought to leave? I said, what's today? Friday. How about Monday? Wow, Monday. Where's he going to go? Ask him. I have no idea. He's 28. Let him figure it out. Well, you know my wife. No, I don't. You know what needs to be done in that situation? And I've told guys this. Listen, you love the Lord. Your wife loves the Lord. She's a strong gal. Thank God she's strong. That's wonderful. But you know what? You got to say, sweetheart, listen, we got to pray about this. We got to talk about it. This isn't right before the Lord. We got to do the right thing here. And we need to do it together. That's what you need to do. You're the head of the house. You'll give an account for your family because Jesus has made you the head. Work it out. But you cannot enable that. You cannot keep that kid. He's not a kid. You can't keep a 28-year-old on welfare. That which leads me to the third point. And before I get to the third point, let me say this. If you have, and I have some friends who have sons who have physical challenges, emotional challenges, you're obviously going to make exceptions depending on the need. Of course, you get this. What we're saying is you can't enable young men to be irresponsible. Third point, they need to make their own money. I've seen young men who are in their 20s and 30s who are still breastfeeding financially. That's absurd. It's absurd. He needs to make his own money. Cut him off. 
Fourth marker of becoming a man, get married. I've had guys at Christian conferences say, well, you know, my, my girlfriend and I, we're living together. We just kind of want to find out if we're sexually compatible. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. You're male? Female? She female? Yeah, yeah. You're good. <laughs> Marry her. What you're doing is sin. Sin. The only sexual relationship that God blesses in the entire universe is a sexual, intimate relationship between a husband and wife within marriage. Everything else is sin. Period. Get married. Five. Have kids. That'll make you grow up. Because those little suckers aren't interested in serving you. You'll be exhausted. You don't know what time zone you're in. You don't know if it's Christmas or summer. But it didn't, it didn't get any better than that. Dad gummit, that's great stuff. My little grandson Holden, I, I'm watching him one day, and he got up from his nap, and he just, I picked him up, and he just puts his, he's about two. So I got in the chair with him, and he just wanted to, I just told him, I just told him. He likes for me to hold him. See, that makes those little guys feel safe and secure. There's a father hunger in little boys. It needs to be fed. And I just hold him. We're real quiet. I said, you know, Holden, after a few minutes, I said, Holden, one day, you're going to grow up to be a man like your daddy. You're not saying anything, you just listening to me. And you're going to meet a pretty lady like your mommy. And you're going to get married. And then you're going to be a daddy. And you're going to have some little kids who don't want to take naps. And after they take a nap, it's hard for them to wake up. I'm just talking to him. I'm talking to him about acting like a man. You don't have to pull out your Bible. You just talk with them as you go through life. Yeah. Let's talk about the detour of manhood. What do you mean a detour? Well, there's a detour that has occurred in regard to manhood. In 1966, Marion Levy was a professor at Princeton. He wrote these words back in 66. He said, our young are the first people of whom the following can be said if they are males. They and their fathers and their brothers and sons and all the males they know are overwhelmingly likely to have been reared under the direct domination and supervision of females from birth to maturity. What he's saying is, you look around on that back in 66, I was a junior in high school in 66. Back then, he, every male he knew and every male who knows every male, every male had been reared by ladies from birth to maturity. That was unusual in the history of the world. Now listen, thank God. For godly ladies. I've been blessed with them my whole life. I had two grandmas who prayed for me before I was ever born. My mom prays for me. My mom said yesterday, how can I pray for you, Steve? You know what a blessing that is? I got a wife. I got a godly wife. She gets me. She likes me. <laughs> Forty years and I'm still shocked. I got a daughter who's got a husband, kids. I, uh, thank God for ladies and their influence. But can I say this? Some of you are single moms. You're doing the work of two people all by yourself. What a load. You weren't designed to do it by yourself. Some of you have been raised by single moms. You love them to death. You thank God for their sacrifice, and they sacrificed. We're not depreciating ladies here when we talk about Boys just being raised by ladies. Please understand that. You know. You know we're not depreciating them. We thank God for their influence. Before the Industrial Revolution, here's how life worked. You get married, you get married young in your teens. You'd immediately have kids because there was no birth control. So you're 17, your wife's 16. Nine months later, you got a baby. And then a year later, you get another one, and a year later, you get another one, and you're a farmer, and you're working the land, and you got six kids, and by the time you're 27, you look like you're 93, and it just, life was hard, okay? It was just flat out hard. 
People didn't live long back then. Women died in childbirth. It was tough. Industrial Revolution came along, a lot of great technology and machinery, and okay. Before the Industrial Revolution, you'd get married, you'd have kids. The mom would raise the boys and girls up to the age of six, no later than seven, and then the boys would go with their dads into the fields. Most men were farmers. At the age of seven, the boy would go into the fields with his dad. He'd be with his dad 10, 12, 14 hours a day, learning how to farm, learning the trade of being a farmer, learning how to be a man, seeing his dad interact with other men. The primary influence in his life was his father, who was showing him how to act like a man. When the Industrial Revolution came, the World Book Encyclopedia article in 1966 edition says serious social evils developed. Why? Because factories were constructed, and for the first time in history, men were taken out of the home to go to work, and serious social evils developed because boys need men. Boys need their dads. As a result of that, something called feminization began to happen. What's feminization? Now, I'm going to give feminization to you real quick. First time I read this, it's from a guy named Stephen Clark. It's very good. First time I read it, I recognized myself. I thought, my gosh, I've been feminized. I had a real strong dad, a strong family. It kind of shocked me. But you can't help but being feminized in this culture because it's everywhere. It's in the water. It's going to get you. But here's the thing about feminization. It can be detected. Watch this. It can be reversed. It can be reversed. Actually, pretty easily. So this is the detour that happens to most men in America away from manhood into feminization. So let me quote this. Being feminized then is not the same as being effeminate or being feminine. I got through one sentence. Let me make a comment. I've been studying all summer on gender confusion, transgender, I have a friend named Walt Heyer who was one of the first men in America to have the transgendered surgery. He has a ministry now to those that are in that, and it's mostly a ministry of helping them fight off suicide. Walt went through it, found the Lord, just an amazing story. You can look him up, Walt Heyer, H-E-Y-E-R. I've been studying some of Walt's stuff. There is a book. It's the best thing I've ever read on homosexuality by Joseph Nicolosi. Joseph and Linda Nicolosi, A Parent's Guide to Preventing Homosexuality. It talks about sensitive boys. It talks about girls that are tomboys. It talks about gender fluid. It's not just for parents. It's for everybody. It's strong. Most boys are kind of like what you call rough and tumble. But a smaller segment of boys are sensitive. They're not rough and tumble. They don't want to play ball. They don't want to play sports. That's okay. God didn't make them for that. They tend to be strong in the arts, in the sciences, gifts of music. Okay? If you've got a boy and that's his gift, he wants to play a musical instrument, and he doesn't want to play football, don't make him. There are three A's where fathers and mothers have to get in to know their kids. I'm going to give you the three A's. This will help fight off effeminacy. It'll help find off, fight off gender confusion. Three A's. Attention. Get honed in on who they are. When my son John, my oldest boy, was in middle school, early high school for three years, I was pretty attentive, and then I got distracted, I got ambushed, and I missed some things. And it was my fault. And come back around and try to circle them. But I was teaching this stuff, and I missed it. It can happen. Attention. Here's the second one. Affirmation. Affirm how God has made it. You got a gift. You love math. You love science. You love this. Great. Affirm them. Don't try to change them. If you weren't a great athlete, but you're going to be determined your boy's going to be an athlete. Or your girl. Acknowledge how God made them. Three. Affection. Plenty of affection. I've said this before. I kiss my little grandsons on the lips. That's what we do when I just give them a little smooch. Now, I'm going to do that when they're 23. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but when they're little, that's what we do. It's healthy. It's masculine. Helps fight off that little father hunger. They're loved by their daddy, by their papa. 
safe, secure, it's good stuff. Yeah. I've not always been good on affection. Actually, I've been weak on affection. I've had to learn over the years. I'm trying to get better. I'm really trying to get better. Now when I see my kids, they run because I'm going to slobber on them. And <laughs> that's a joke. That's not true. But hey, we've all screwed up. So when you screw up, correct it. Say, Jesus, help me here. Okay, now let's get to feminization. A feminized male is a male who has learned to behave or react in ways that are more appropriate to women. Why? He's always been around ladies. The feminized male can be normal as a male. No tendencies to reject being male. No tendencies towards homosexuality. Yet he can have been so influenced by women or so identified himself in a world in which women dominate that many of his interests and traits are more womanly than manly. Makes sense. Compared to men who have not been feminized, he will place much higher emphasis and attention on how he feels and how other people feel. Okay? Sensitive. Great trait to be sensitive. But you just can't live off how you feel. You have to live off what is true. We can't live off our emotions. We're so strong on feelings in this culture that if you're a male, but you feel like you're a female, well then, fine. That makes no sense. He will be much more gentle and handle situations in a soft way. Nothing wrong with that, but you can't handle every situation in a soft way. Sometimes you can, most times you can, but not always. He will be much more subject to the approval of the group. You don't need the approval of the group. You just need to do what's right. Paul said, we make it our ambition, whether out of the body or in the body, we make it our ambition to please the Lord. We just need to please the Lord. You're not going to please everybody else. But you see, that can become a big issue. He will sometimes tend to relate by preference to women and other feminized or effeminate men and will sometimes have a difficult time with an all-male group. Why? He's not been around males. I had a friend, he had several sons. The youngest was kind of a mama's boy, and whenever there were girls, he was with the girls, never with the boys. I'm just watching this. My friend came, mentioned it to me. We talked about it. And basically what I said was, you got to make him your focus. And you got to start spending time with him. And you just need to be with him. And don't let him push you away. Don't let them push you away. You get involved. Find out what he likes and do what he likes. Do things with him. Get involved with him. Take him to the office. Do this, do this. I'm telling you, a couple years later, that kid was completely turned around because his father had gotten into his heart and into his life and given him attention. Now, what do you do if you don't have a father? What do you do if your husband's not there? Men have been taken out historically over the years. Men didn't last long historically. They would get sick. They would have not a long lifespan. Some men were, would die of illness. Some men would die in war. Then other men in the family would have an influence in the church, in the community, and the boy could model himself after those men. It still works that way. The feminized man will tend to idealize women, and if he is religious, he will tend to see in women the ideal Christian's or the definition of what it means to be spiritual. He will identify Christian virtue with feminine characteristics. That's huge. I've seen young pastors who have listened to so many women teachers in the church that they have actually taken on their traits and their speech intonations. That's not good. Did you catch that last one? Feminized men will idealize women. If he's religious, he'll tend to see in women the ideal Christians or what the definition of what it means to be spiritual. He will identify Christian virtue with feminine characteristics. That's not right. So we better get to the North Star. Let's get to Jesus. These are the problems. How do we correct it? How do we fix it? I've had guys all over the country say, see, what's the secret to having a strong men's group? I said, you really want to know or you want the nice answer? Oh, no, I want the real answer. Get a masculine pastor. Because like attracts like. I'm just telling you. In Hollywood, the clergy guy is always passive. In the movies, he's always a wuss. Is he not? Yeah. So let's look at Jesus. How do you correct this feminization thing? He will identify Christian virtue with feminine characteristics. So let me give you some characteristics, all right? Gentleness, kindness, tenderness. Are those good characteristics? Absolutely. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Let's take boldness. 
courage, truth-telling. Are those good characteristics? Absolutely. In the church, we tend to take kindness, gentleness, and tenderness and elevate them over boldness and courage. That's a mistake. True masculinity, and you see this in Jesus, Jesus would take the right trait and apply it at the right time. Could Jesus be tender? Of course. Jairus' daughter, will you come in my little girl's? He's on his way. And on the way, there's a lady with an issue of blood, and she reaches the hem of his garment, and he knew power came out, and he said, who touched me? Poor little lady was just cowering. And then, she, it was me. And so your faith has made you well. That's called tenderness. He could be tender. He had all these broken people. He was tender. Could he be gentle? Absolutely. Was he always gentle? No. Was he always tender? No, because sometimes that's not what was called for. Twice he cleared out the temple. When I was a little boy, I was five years old, my mom had women's magazines around the house. Back then they used to be clean. Now they're weird. <laughs> On the back, there would be an ad for Breck Shampoo. On the back cover of all the women's magazines. And there was always a model, a portrait, Beautiful young girl with one month of redhead, blonde, brunette, you know, every month they switched. But always in profile, and they all had shiny, lustrous hair because they used Breck shampoo. So I'm five years old. I go with my mom to Berean Bible Bookstore in Bakersfield, California, and she's getting some for church or Sunday school. I don't know. What, I'm just there. And I'm walking around, and it's taking a while, and I'm just looking around, and I'm bored. And they had all these paintings. I start looking around, and I see this painting of Jesus. You've seen it. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's up against this big rock. And I started looking at it because it was taking so long. I really started looking at it. I, started, I looked at his hands. And you know, I started looking at his hands, and his hands looked more like my mom's than my dad's. It looked like he had a manicure. And then his face, he had a beard, but, his, but the rest of his face looked like my mom. He had any scars, he didn't anything like my dad. It was just kind of soft and glowing and shining and feminine. And then I saw his hair. This is a true story. I'm five years old and I went, Jesus used Breck shampoo. That's an absolute true story. And I want to tell you something. The guy who painted that picture was feminized because Jesus didn't look like that because when he showed up out of that carpenter shop and started doing miracles, they said, what the heck is going on? Is this not the carpenter? And he didn't buy his lumber at Lowe's. <laughs> he cut the trees. He split the logs. He planed the wood. He had forearms. He had busted up fingernails. He was a man. And he walked into the temple twice because they were blaspheming the father. He took a whip and he started kicking tail and taking names. And they headed for the exodus. And nobody said, look at his hair. <laughs> Did they? No. So for me, I want to act like a man. I want to be a balanced man. I want my boys. I want my grandboys. You too. Jesus is the model. What's masculinity from Jesus? You bring the appropriate trait at the right time. So that means as men, we should have no trouble being tender. I went through depression for three years in my early 30s. One reason, you know why? I'm pretty hard and I'm pretty blunt. And blunt instruments can kill and God broke my heart and he crushed me. I cried three to four hours a day and I couldn't stop. He had to tenderize my spirit. I had a wife, I had little kids. It was good for me that I was afflicted. When my kids were at home, I tried to put them in bed at night. Turn off that game and get upstairs. I mean, unless it's a playoff game. That was my job. And normally it's just a normal night. They don't, you know, normal thing. They don't want to go to bed. I want them in bed, you know, okay. One night I was putting Rachel to bed. She was nine or ten. I said, sweetheart, how was school today? Fine, Daddy. Did you learn anything? No. I just, regular stuff. Okay, let's get in bed. She got in bed. And all of a sudden she said, you know, Daddy, I don't think I'm pretty. What? What's that? Daddy, I don't think I'm pretty. What? Why don't you think you're pretty, Rachel? You see my teeth, Daddy? How they're coming in jagged? I said, sweetheart, that's no big deal. Daddy will cut off his right arm. We'll get an orthodontist. We will. Didn't say it. I was thinking it. And that's what we did. And she's got a million-dollar smile. I said, sweetheart, let me tell you something. You're a pretty girl. 
There's always someone who's prettier. There's always someone who's a better athlete. But you know what? You're a pretty girl. You know what I love about you? You're like mommy. See, there's two kinds of pretty. There's pretty on the outside, but there's pretty on the inside. I love it about you, that you're just not pretty outside, but you're pretty inside. Some of the most beautiful women in all the world have been married six, seven, eight times because nobody can stand to be around them. That's not you. See, I'm also to be tender with my boys. Now, you got to teach boys how to be men. Teenage boys never want to go to sleep. They never, once they're asleep, they never want to get out of bed. <laughs> At times, I told my boys, if you're not up by seven, I'm going to take this Dickies yellow cup and fill the water, I'm going to pour it on your face. <laughs> oh, Dad, that's so funny. I said, I'm serious. <laughs> seven o'clock, they're right there. I walk in. Josh had a friend. I started walking. Dad, you can't do that. He, he's not your son. I said, yeah, but he's staying here this summer. <laughs> Every time we get together, what do we talk about? Hey, Mr. Fry, you remember when you... Because, see, now they're men, and they got to get up early and go work. So sometimes you got to give them a little toughness, but not always, because sometimes you got to be tender with your boys. I was nine or ten. I got hit in the face with a baseball bat. Little League threw off my mask. The kid's coming around to score. I'm ready. There was a bat. Someone picked up the bat to throw it out, way, out of the way. Hit me in the face. I went down. Louisville Slugger right there. First coach up to me. First, I mean, I'm in pain. First guy up to me said, don't cry. Well, let me hit you in the face with this bat. <laughs> you know who the second guy there was? Was my dad. Now, my dad was an athlete. He was a man's man. My dad didn't say, don't cry. He just edged right in there. And he said, just stay right there, Steve. And he had his hand on my shoulder, and he's just patting me with that massive hand he had, that paw. He just patted me. He says, where's that hurt, man? And I'm talking to him, and he's just talking to me. And he said, you're all right. Let's just check this out. And he's just being real tender with me. Because you see, that's what I needed. And after a while, he said, can you get up? And I said, yeah, I think so. He said, all right, let's put that eyeball back in the socket. <laughs> I made that up. Appropriate trade at the right time. You guys getting this? That's manhood. That's Jesus. I'll close with this. A number of years ago, my daughter was late 20s. We're talking one night in the kitchen, and she starts telling me she's in a church. I don't go there, but I knew the guys there in a singles group. She said, Dad, you know my friend? Sure, Linda. She's been dating this guy in a singles group. Seems like a neat Christian guy. I said, oh, great. Yeah, but it's gotten weird, and she's going to break up with him. And I said, oh, okay. He said, it's weird, Dad, because he's scaring her. I said, what do you mean he's scaring her? Well, he's, he's calling her in the middle of the night and saying some things. And the other night, he came over and pounded on her door and really scared her. I said, do the guys in the church know? He goes, yeah. I said, what's going on? They said, nothing. And it looks like he was in another church or two and got a girl or two pregnant. Really? What's this guy's name? He told me. I don't go there, but a few months later, Christmas time, I fly in from somewhere. Rachel was singing. They had like four or five Christmas services in a row, and I just missed her. And I'm in the lobby trying to figure out the next service, coffee shop thing. And I'm reading it, and there's a guy next to me, a young guy. And I said, you know when the next service starts? And he goes, yeah, about 35 minutes. And he said, hey, are you Rachel's dad? And I said, yeah. He said, man, I always wanted to meet you. Don't you talk to men and write books to men and all that? I go, yeah. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm Rachel's dad. And he said, well, I'm such and such. He was the guy. And he said, oh, I'd like to talk with you sometime. I said, well, we got 35 minutes. Can I buy you coffee? He said, oh, that'd be great. I said, good. So he said, I'm about coffee. And uh, he said, yeah, I've always wanted to talk to you. And I said, well, you know, I kind of wanted to talk to you. <laughs> he said, really? I said, yeah, really. He said, wow. Well, can I ask you what about? And I said, sure. I was told that you'd been seeing Linda. And he goes, yeah. And uh, I've also been told that you're scaring her. Oh, well, and I said, I don't want you to talk. I want you to listen. Because I understand you're very winsome and you're very persuasive and you're very gregarious. I want you to hear me closely. She's been up to our home. 
Her parents have been in our home, but you know they live 1,500 miles away. Her dad's not here. So here's how this is going to work. I'm stepping in. And from now on, you're going to deal with me. And you're not dealing with her. And if you call her, I'm going to promise you, I'm going to call you. And if you knock on her door, I guarantee you I will knock on yours. And I'll tell you what else. I'll go to the leadership, and we'll invoke church discipline. And if we have to, we'll get a restraining order, and we'll put your tail in jail. Why did I push so hard? Because he was not repentant. He doubled down. He was obstinate. And I had to put some fear in that young man. Do I do that every weekend? No. Why would I? But as I read my Bible, men are to protect women. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If I hear a noise at 3 in the morning, I say, Mary, go check that out, will you? <laughs> I don't say that. I go check it out. Why? Because men are supposed to protect their women. We're so messed up in this culture, we send 18-year-old girls into combat. We had to be ashamed of ourselves. Am I going to let a little 18-year-old girl fight for me? Men protect their women. That's a Christian principle because they're valuable and they're made in the image of God. Yeah, they're gifted. Yeah, they're smart. Yeah, but you know what? God made you, man, with 40% more muscle mass than your wife, and you can be the same height and same weight, but he made you stronger because he wanted you to protect. Jesus protected the weak. You get this. What's masculinity? Right trait, right time. Who would have a problem with that? You know what I asked the Lord to help me do? Here's spiritual leadership. I've never seen it, Steve. Here's what it is. Jesus just went around doing good. You know what that meant? He went around and he just kept doing the next right thing. You just do the next right thing. What's the next right thing? Take it out to trash? Do the next right thing. That's godliness. That's acting like a man. And somebody's watching you. And when you do that, you're pointing them to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith and the author of manhood.